keynote speaker, Mr. Matt Nimitz. And I want to take a moment to introduce the great Matt Nimitz. I take great pride in hosting him at Penn Law for so many different reasons. And you'll know why when I talk to you about his, his story and his journey. But I met him when, because I have the privilege of serving with him on the board of Landesa, the largest global land rights organization, and he was the mentor to the CEO, the current CEO at uh, Landesa, when he mentored the current CEO and his friends who graduated from Harvard Law School when he was chair of Paul Weiss. So why I focus on that is the importance of mentoring, the importance of mentoring the next generation. He mentored the next generation 25 years ago. And they are now the CEOs of these different organizations and Matt serves on the boards of those organizations. You see how this kind of world works and the world turns with mentoring and the ways in which we turn to our mentors for guidance throughout the life's life, throughout our life cycle. So Matt, Matt's journey is so powerful here for us at Penn Law and for Penn because we train our students and our leaders to serve both in the private sector and in public life. And we see them as seamlessly intertwined and that you don't have to choose one over the other. Matt Nimitz graduated from Williams College then was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and then was president of the Harvard Law Review, no means feat, and then he clerked for Justice Harlan. This is part of the history of the United States. This is part of the legend of the United States. And then he worked in private practice, in law firms, in some of the biggest law firms in the United States, but also served under President Carter as his chief counselor to the Department of State, where he served uh, Secretary Vance on major American foreign policy issues that define American foreign policy and America's own national history. And then he went on back again to Paul Weiss, where he became partner and chair of Paul Weiss. And then, sec then President, this is, I called, I, I referred to, pre referred to the Clinton, uh, the Clinton leader as Secretary Clinton, and that's, that's a Freudian slip. But he was asked by President Clinton to serve to serve as a special representative to the, to the longest lasting naming dispute in the world, the naming dispute between Greece and Macedonia. And again, the Freudian slip was, I know that if Secretary Clinton was the President of the United States, she would have again called upon Matt Nimitz to serve as one of her special representatives to many crisis situations and conflicts around the world, but that is yet to be. But he served, he served the Clinton administration, he served President Clinton, and now he serves as the United Nations special representative to this long-lasting, enduring conflict situation, which he has managed to provide leadership, provide wisdom, and for the time being, help resolve. And that is the story that he is going to share with you. But the whole importance of this conversation transcends foreign policy. It's about what's in a name. 
it's also about who owns Alexander the Great. Who owns the great myths and legends and the stories of our world? Who gets to claim culture? Here at Penlaw, we've been having these conversations. Do we get to own culture? Who owns culture? And how do we define culture? Especially the mythology of a land, the legends of a land. And it is also about holding ancient grudges. And the story goes. What about these old ancient grudges are we still defined by these grudges that we inherit historically and that's the story that Mr. Nimitz is going to share with us and once again it is Penlaw's great honor to host one of the greatest foreign policy experts and diplomats. Thank so you. I think Rangiri, she's given my speech already, so, uh, well, I'm really honored to be here and uh, always admired uh, Penn, uh, University of Pennsylvania and Penn Law, and uh, when Rangiri said uh, I should come down here, the greatest thing is always meeting the next generation. Uh, uh, so I, I've written out a few things here. I'll try to uh, uh, go through what I wrote, but, but maybe speed it up a little bit so it'll be more time uh, <clears throat> uh, for questions, uh, because I think this intersection of law and diplomacy is really a, a very exciting area. And, and uh, you heard earlier this morning about some of these, some of these issues. You can't um, solve some of the world problems without getting into the actual laws, the implementation, the detail. And those of you who are in law school, you really have to get into what are the regulations, exactly what they say, what are the penalties, but you also need the diplomacy in order to move the things forward on, on multiple uh, levels. So uh, I'm a realist in foreign policy. I see the world uh, uh, not as a trajectory of everything getting better. Uh, things get better, things get worse. Uh, you read, pick up uh, the newspaper in the morning. I'm still one of those people who gets the newspaper. Maybe I'm the last. You know, my wife uh, does it online. My kids think I'm crazy, but I still get an actual newspaper. Uh, and when you turn the pages and uh, you see civil strife and you see some of the horrific things that are going on in the world uh, and in our environmental disasters, we didn't talk about uh, the climate change issue that's going to devastate, you know, and um, all, these, all these dysfunctional uh, uh, things uh, within our own country here, uh, killings uh, and uh, 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 governmental uh, lack of leadership in areas, uh, you, get, you can be discouraged. And I think I, I, I'm glad to see so many people here as I think, I think there is a positive side. And the positive thing is that uh, some things do get better, and we've heard in, 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 in the gender area, things have gotten better. When I was at Harvard Law School, um, we had very, very few women. Women had just been admitted a few years earlier, and there were very, very few women, uh, very few uh, African Americans, and, and now the composition of law schools and American uh, higher education is, is, is completely different. Um, uh, there is hope in artificial intelligence. I believe in it. Uh, your generation will have more of it. Maybe artificial intelligence is going to help you solve problems. 
but I'm still uh, relying on, on human beings as human beings, and I think human beings have a capacity to solve problems, um, and, but it takes leadership and it takes a lot of hard work and, and political action. Uh, so I'm gonna do two things. McGeady's uh, given me a, 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 something like 20 minutes. I'm gonna do about 10 minutes on the so-called Macedonian name dispute. If I can do 10 minutes, it'll be the shortest description of that dispute in the history of mankind. Uh, but I'm going to try it. And then I'm going to talk about 10 minutes about my career because um, uh, Mangita said it might, it might be sort of fun for you to hear and, 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 and it might give you some ideas. So I'll give you some ideas about how I organized uh, my career. Um, it sounds like I organized it. I didn't organize it. It was mostly happened to me, but there it is. Uh, so, um, you know, the issue between Greece and its northern neighbor um, uh, is an example of a really tough issue between two neighboring countries that is emotional on the human level. This is a, a dispute about a name, so people say, how can you spend so much time on a name? And this uh, BBC writer wrote an article about me, and, and the, the he headline they put on was, uh, uh, the heading was, uh, to a man who spent 23 years focused on one word, you know, Macedonia. And they, one of the questions he asked me, how can you spend 23 years, so they announced it's 24 years now, uh, you know, what, uh, focusing on one word? And I said, well, it's a very interesting word, <laughs> Macedonia, and you can spend a lifetime on it, and it's never boring. Um, uh, and it has cultural issues, it has historical issues, it has political issues, uh, and it is extremely emotional in both uh, uh, countries. But we're, we're getting to a resolution. Uh, it's, not, it's not clear that it's gonna get through, but I'm, 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 I'm pretty uh, hopeful, uh, and uh, 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 I'll try to tell you uh, what it's about. So I won't go back to Alexander the Great, uh, uh, but but he he's watching it from up there, you know, uh, Mount Olympus, where he hangs out with the other uh, Greek gods. And uh, and um, uh, but let's just go to Yugoslavia. So uh, Yugoslavia, and, and and most of you probably don't even know much about Yugoslavia because. Uh, Yugoslavia was a really important European country, uh, but it, in 1991-92, it basically collapsed at a country, as a country, which is a story in itself, and really an interesting, a really interesting, interesting story. But um, made up of six uh, constituent states within Yugoslavia, and they figured out they couldn't live together. Um, and that's another story. One of the smallest, the most southernest part uh, of these little um, republics within Yugoslavia uh, was known as the Socialist Republic of Macedonia, sometimes called the People's Socialist Republic of Macedonia. They changed their names depending on their thing. But um, which before it was part of Yugoslavia was a part of Serbia. And before it was part of Serbia, it was a part of the Ottoman Empire. You know about the Ottoman Empire. Before it was part of the Ottoman Empire, it was part of uh, the Byzantine Empire. And before it was part of the Byzantine Empire, it was part of the Roman Empire. Before it was 
taken over by the Roman Empire. It was part of Alexander the Great's uh, 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 and Philip of Macedon's, you know, Macedonian uh, Empire. So you're going that back to 300, 400 BC. Um, uh, this region that that constantly was put into different, uh, moved around in different um, empires. But it was never a nation. It was never a nation state. This, uh, but when Yugoslavia broke up, they said each of the six constituent parts: uh, Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia Herzegovina, Montenegro. Each one could be a separate country and go into the United Nations. So that's how they they broke up. And this little country, uh, very proud, um, uh, took the name uh, Republic of Macedonia. They dropped the people's part and they dropped the socialist part and they call themselves Republic of Macedonia in their constitution, in the new constitution and they applied to the United Nations uh, like the other. And uh, their southern neighbor of Greece watching all this, uh, uh, getting nervous and nervous uh, for various reasons, uh, said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you, who, who are you guys? He's, they say, the northern Greece is Macedonia. The people of northern Greece, they're the Macedonians. The history of Macedonia is a Hellenic Greek history. Um, uh, you people, who are you people? You people are a Slavic people. You didn't come into this region until 500, 600 AD. And you remember uh, Alexander the Great died in 300 something BC. So this is like 800 years later you guys came into this region. And for Greece, you know, uh, this, this, you have nothing to do with Macedonia. And by calling yourself Republic of Macedonia, you're implying that the whole Macedonian region is, is part of your country. Uh, and that is uh, a threat to Greece, because by your very name, you're implying that. Uh, now, how, uh, when I had to go down to Congress and explain all this stuff to them, I, I gave them this example. I said, uh, what if Mexico changes its name from uh, Republic of Mexico to Republic of Texas and starts putting book, uh, maps in its school books uh, showing historic Mexico with the old borders and, and changes its flag to put the Alamo on the flag and, and, and doing other things? Uh, and, and the congressman said, well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't tolerate that. You know, how could they call themselves Republic of Texas when we're Texas? You know? And when I dealt with Scandinavians, uh, I said uh, to the Finns and to the Norwegians, what if Sweden changed its name from Sweden to Scandinavia and started putting out maps of historic Scandinavia, which of course includes Norway, Finland, Denmark. And uh, the name Scandinavia is a regional name. It, it, it's, uh, 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 so the Norwegians said, oh, we wouldn't like that very much, you know. Well, there's a lot in the name, and we can talk about Palestine, we can talk about the Arabian Gulf or the Persian Gulf, we can talk about uh, uh, the Sea of uh, Japan, which the Koreans uh, won't tolerate, they call it the East Sea, uh, and, and lots of places in the world where names have a significance. Uh, and here, uh, I won't get into the whole history, why the Greeks were so sensitive about this, whether they were justified in this, uh, whether they were getting extreme on the thing, but the Greeks raised the issue and they uh, uh, objected to the uh, country coming into the UN with that name. 
Security Council dealt with it, and Security Council decided that this was an issue of, of security and peace in the region and said this country can come into the United Nations because it is a nation state, but under a provisional um, designation, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Because you remember, it was in Yugoslavia called Republic of Yugoslavia. So they said, this is the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia uh, until you settle this issue of the name. And so that happened in 1993. So the country came in, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, and many countries used that designation. Other countries adopted the constitutional name, uh, Republic of Macedonia. Um, but Greece went further. It, it, it had originally put up an embargo on this new little country, and then it went further, and it uh, vetoed them in the uh, EU, European Union, and vetoed them in NATO. So this small little country, only a couple million people, uh, a fragile little country, couldn't get into the EU, couldn't get into NATO, uh, very difficult thing. So uh, the Secretary General appointed Cyrus Vance, former Secretary of State of the United States, to be the mediator on this thing. Uh, I was the U.S. mediator. We, we solved some of the problems, but not the name. I helped Mr. Vance. Uh, he re re resigned from that position, ill health. In 1999, Secretary General Kofi Annan asked me to pick it up after him, so I continued the process. Um, and uh, I won't tell you all that I did in the 19 years uh, of talking and talking and talking, uh, um, but um, we did reach an agreement uh, this year, uh, signed in June at Lake Prespus, which is a beautiful lake uh, between the two countries. And um, uh, uh, this agreement is now uh, before the two parliaments. So it's uh, in the uh, uh, parliament now, uh, and then we'll go to the Greek parliament. Um, and you notice I never use the name of the country myself because I never know what, which one to use. But uh, you know, as a UN, UN person, I use the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia until the name is changed. The deal that we worked out in this agreement basically is this. Country will change its name to, from the Republic of Macedonia uh, to the Republic of North Macedonia. And because it's, a, it's part of the Macedonian region, but it's in the northern part, so it sort of makes certain sense to call it Republic of North Macedonia. And that will be for all purposes. Um, and uh, the people will be recognized as Macedonians, um, uh, citizens of the Republic of North Macedonia, but the, the Macedonia, Makedonski, is, is their way of, of saying the name. Uh, and their language will be recognized as a Macedonian language, as, uh, as a South Slav language. And they will uh, put and in the agreement, we have a provision that says that it's understood that this is not connected to the ancient Alexander the Great period of, of history, and that that's part of the Hellenic history uh, and part of the Greek national uh, culture. And there are various other provisions. It's, an, it's a, something like a 10-page, you know, 12-page agreement with lots of provisions on, on things that they will do together. And uh, the Greeks say they will... Uh, um, support them in the EU and support them in NATO, so they'll move into those organizations, and, and uh, they will live happily ever after, we hope. Uh, yeah, it's before both parliaments. In both countries, there's a lot of opposition.
by nationalist forces saying almost the same thing. This is a sellout of Macedonian identity, or on the other side, there's a sellout of the Greek uh, identity. And in both countries, it's, it's very emotional, um, with probably in both countries a majority of people not really being in favor of it, thinking that they're giving up too much. But deep down, figuring this is, this, most thinking people, this is the best solution. And if it fails, it's going to be, you know, maybe I said another 25 years <laughs> of discussion before they come up with probably the same thing. But in any event, uh, it's before the, the two parliaments, and within a month or two, uh, we hope that it gets approved. If it doesn't get approved, then it doesn't get approved. Uh, I have to be very philosophic about it as a mediator. Um, so um, uh, let me turn now. I would, Happy to answer questions about this issue, uh, but it's it's a pretty arcane area. Uh, but people who are interested in it can speak for hours and hours and hours about it, uh, which we don't have here. Um, so let me uh, uh, say, how, how did I get uh, uh, into this into this uh, job? And all of you are going to have really interesting careers. I know that you, you know, but you never know where you're sitting now how it's going to evolve. Your story is a good story. You know, when you were a girl in, in, in Cairo, did you know someday you'd be sitting in the University of Pennsylvania talking about women's rights around the world? I mean, it's, it's, it's a question. So I, I grew up in, 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 in Brooklyn, in, in New York, uh, went to ordinary schools, and as I tell my children, I, I had absolutely no talent except one. I had one talent. And that was, I was very good at taking exams. That's my only talent. <laughs> it's a very good talent when you're a student. I tell you, it is a talent. And, uh, and by virtue of doing well in exams, you know, I, I, I uh, uh, was able to go to uh, Williams, and Williams did very well. I was able to go to Oxford, Oxford and Harvard Law School. And uh, as uh, my Mother used to say, you know, someone has to be number one in the class, so why not me? So uh, I was, uh, and president of Harvard Law Review, and by virtue of that, I got to be a Supreme Court law clerk. Now that is, it's, it's not easy to do. Most people can't do it, but I was very fortunate I, that I then went to the White House with President Lyndon Johnson. Uh, I worked for the last two years of the Johnson administration, the Vietnam War. To you, this is ancient, most of you, this is ancient history. Uh, uh, history. Yes, it's your uh, history, but I mean, it's a long time ago for them. I mean, my my kids mix up Lyndon Johnson with Andrew Johnson, so so it's 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 far, it's far back, but it was very exciting. And then I decided um, to um, to go to uh, uh, to actually be a real lawyer. I decided that I really wanted to be a commercial lawyer understand how the law works, business. Uh, I went back to New York um, and, uh, uh, and uh, went to uh, uh, a law firm. And my second, you know, my, my first uh, rule in doing all these things is, is trying to find interesting things to do with your lives and take some risk. You know, when I did this, I, I didn't come from with any money at all. Um, I didn't have any money. But when, when I could get a job at the White House, I wasn't going to turn it down. You know, and, and, uh, um, and you look for mentors. Uh, you, you mentioned the word mentors. I, I really enjoy mentoring people. 
because people uh, uh, mentored me. So my goal is always, and I put this out to you in your careers, whatever career you go to, is try to work for the best people in the field that you choose. If you're a medical doctor, the best surgeon. If you want to be uh, a lawyer, try to work with the best lawyers. Try to go to the best places that do what you're interested. If you want to be a chef, you go to the best restaurant and work with the best chefs. But always try to go to the best because that's where you learn. It doesn't matter what you what you do. I knew someone who's a chef in a great restaurant. He was he only did uh, risotto. He was an Italian restaurant. He did a risotto for a year just you know doing that. Or if you do a sushi chef, you know you have to you have to. They don't even let you cut the tuna for the first two or three years, you know. But you really have to uh, go to mentors. Um, and when I was at the White House, I worked for a guy named Joe Califano special assistant to the president for domestic affairs. And um, when I was going back to New York, I, I had these job offers from various law firms because I had a great record. And they, and, but I hadn't the faintest idea where to go. So I asked my boss, Joe Califano, I said, you know, which of these law firms should I go to? I don't know anything about any of them. And, and he said, I'm going to see the president in a few minutes. I'll discuss it with him. You know, So this is the middle of the Vietnam War. The president was doing this. The country was falling apart. But anyway. And then he came back the next day. He said, you know, President and I were talking. We think you ought to go work for Cyrus Vance at Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett. I said, okay, if you say that, I'll do that. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. And it turned out to be, to be the right thing to do. And uh, I worked eight years at Simpson, Thatcher. And I worked very hard all day, all night. I became a, a very good uh, corporate lawyer. At least I thought I was a pretty good corporate lawyer. And then um, one day, uh, Mr. Vance stuck his head in my office. I was working away there in the small little offices. We had tiny little offices, no window either. And he said, uh, uh, the president-elect just asked me to be Secretary of State. That was Jimmy Carter. And I said, oh, that's terrific, sir. Congratulations. And he said, if you want to come down to Washington with me, let me know Monday, okay? And I said, thank you, sir. Uh, it was Friday, Friday afternoon. And I went home. And uh, I had just become a partner of the firm. My wife was five months pregnant. We had just bought an apartment that we could barely afford. I had no money in the bank. But I said, you know, Secretary of State says come down to Washington. And he's such a great man. This is going to be really fun. So why don't we do it? So we, <laughs> I left the law practice. My wife got a new doctor down in Washington. Uh, we found somewhere to live, borrowed a little money. And I stayed there four years in the State Department and worked. And, um, uh, and then, uh, so that's my, so my, my, the way I've organized my life, you know, to do interesting things when they come up. I didn't ask how much I would make. I made less than half what I was making there. My wife had to give up her job, too. And I didn't ask what my position was going to be. Uh, I, didn't, I, I asked, didn't ask about super, you know, I didn't ask anything, anything practical. It was just, you know, the uh, Secretary of State says, come down, so you, you go down. You know, you, you get a job, you jump into it, you know. And, and uh, um, anyway, at the end of the uh, 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 Jimmy Carter administration, which was not a terribly successful thing, but we did a lot of really good stuff. And um, I worked on the Helsinki Final Act. I was the coordinator of the Helsinki sinking process for the United States at that time, 77, 78, a lot, of, a lot of interesting stuff, Cyprus problem, Greek stuff. I went back to New York 
got another job at, I went to Paul Weiss that time, this time, another law firm, and just worked uh, there for 19 years as a corporate lawyer. And, uh, but I kept doing other political things, and then the, my friends at the State Department, they needed, a coordinate, uh, they needed a coordinator for this Macedonian dispute, and they remembered I knew something about it, so they recommended me, so I said, oh, sure, sure. you know, you want me to do that, I'll do that. And so I told my partners, hey, could I do this on the side? You know, they said, okay, it's a pro bono project. So uh, I did that in 19, starting 1994, and uh, I didn't realize it would last, you know, uh, 24, 25 years of, of work there. Um, my last episode of my career was in private equity, completely different. I, as a lawyer, I did a lot of work with private equity think, companies. And one day, one of my clients, he sat down with me and he said, you know, you, we know you so well, why don't you just leave the law practice and come join us at this uh, firm, uh, General Atlantic, uh, starting up. And I, I, my, my, my kids thought I was having a, a, a middle life breakdown uh, uh, because I said, you know, it sounds interesting. I've never done it before. I practice law here now at the firm 19 years. I know what I'm doing, but you know, I'm getting a tired of it, and uh, jump into private equity, that sounds like a good thing to do. So I, I, I became a chief operating officer. I didn't know what a chief operating officer did, but I just went there and got an office, and I printed cards, chief operating officer, and started to do things. And it turned out I was there 12 years, and now the firm has $30 billion, you know, and, and, the, and making a lot of money, some of which they still give to me, which is really nice. So. Um, that's anyway, uh, during all this time, of course, I kept doing the Macedonian thing on the side. <laughs> and at the UN, they thought I was doing it full time because I had these cards saying, you know, Macedonian personal representative, secretary general. At the other office, they thought I was doing that full time. But I managed to keep them all, you know, in balance. Um, I think, uh, then I, re I retired and, and now I run around. I, I'm busier than, than I used to be because I take on all these uh, projects. It takes the on main, all these projects. The main, the main yes. point I want to leave you with, first of all, that's the only issue. These disputes, there are lots of disputes in the world, and I think that they, they, the way we ought to look at them is we manage these disputes and we move them incrementally in a better way. When someone says, are you going to solve the Macedonian dispute, I say, what do you mean by solve? This is, a, this is an issue that has many ramifications that's gone on. Do you want to say back to the days of Philip of Macedon in the fourth century, third century, fourth century BC? Uh, you don't solve it. You know, you don't solve the problem of gender relationships because it constantly changes. But you can make massive improvements. And you can move things from one type. People say, "Did you? Wh how are you working on this Macedonian thing so long uh, without any progress? And I say, well, have you read about it on the front page of the paper? They say, well, no. I say, have you read about it in the back page of the paper? They say, no. I say, well, that is part of a solution. Because take Syria. You read every day what's happening in Syria. You read every day what's happening in Yemen. And... Uh, what take Yemen is such a disaster, human disaster. Uh, if you can move the issue of Yemen from where it is now to a negotiation, then to a ceasefire, then to humanitarian aid, 
then to some political understandings over a certain period of time. You make tremendous human progress. Do you solve the problem of Yemen? It's not even conceivable what that word means, you know, but that's, I think, how you have to look at dealing with these problems. And, and the next generation picks it up from there and moves it, uh, moves it further. Anyway, that's my conclusion. I will be happy to answer yeah. questions later. Thank so you. taking it to the next generation, I think that's a, why don't you stay there? Because they have, uh, we have two interlocutors oh, who yeah. are from the next generation. And we promised you next generation leaders who are in the front lines of some of these hard questions. And our two interlocutors really are representatives of some of the issues you spoke of. Um, I please excuse me, it's Andre Patoski, who is originally from Macedonia, and his family fled, uh, was directly affected by the violence following Macedonia's departure from Yugoslavia. So it is very, very salient and pertinent to have your voice here with us, Andre. Thank you very much. So I ask you to um, interrogate. This is a life, once-in-a-lifetime chance to really interrogate the person who is really helping to define the future of Macedonia. I'm not allowed to be a Macedonian anymore. If I go to Bulgaria, I become a Bulgarian. So a lot of uh, me building my identity was built on the national identity. Um, so kind of following up on that, um, during the campaign, there was a referendum with the name change, and some Macedonian media, questionable in reputation, uh, said that... <laughs> Uh, Mr. Matt Nimitz once off the record said that if he were a Macedonian, he would, not, uh, he would not negotiate on the issue. I'm just curious if that is the case, and if not, uh, what are some ways that if he were a Macedonian would do the negotiations in a different way? Um, I, I could go on with questions, but... <laughs> yeah, I, 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 there's, there's a, there is a fellow who, who said that I once said I, w 